You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. So go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. You heard Ricky Love uh, read the scriptures. Um, Ricky's one of my good friends. His name reminds me of Buddy Love from Nutty Professor. Um, but Ricky is, uh, is originally from Berkeley Springs. He's planting a church in the town that he grew up in. Um, I want you all praying sincerely for Ricky this week. Pray for Wellspring Church. Uh, he didn't mention it in the video, I don't think, but they are in the process of purchasing a building in downtown Welsh, or downtown Berkeley Springs. Um, and so that's not a huge town, but, but they've got a great opportunity to buy a building. It's kind of like about the size of Milton on Main Street, kind of like our building sets. And so it's a good opportunity for them. So be praying just like legally and financially, everything works out with the purchase of that. They'll have to do some renovations and stuff. But uh, we want you guys to take those things seriously as we have people reading scripture for us. Uh, we're highlighting just partnerships that we do. So we've already given a lump sum check to them to help them get the down payment for their building. Uh, we gave them $1,000 this past week, and then uh, we're supporting them uh, with monthly support as well. And so because you guys give faithfully, um, it allows us to, to help new works like that get going. And so appreciate you, you helping with that, and we want you to continue to pray for that, okay? Um, in First Peter, we're, we're going through, uh, we love expository preaching, which means we go verse by verse through the Bible. Um, so I'm not just kind of coming up with a topic each week. Um, I'm just preaching what comes next in the Bible. And uh, our series is entitled Hope and Holiness. And, and this week we see a, a little bit of a shift in Peter's writing. Um, the first couple of weeks, uh, well, really the, the opening week, we looked at uh, the beginning of chapter one, which is, which is mostly doctrine and theological in nature. Um, and so that's where, that's, we see the hope of the gospel there. Then we, we go into holiness. And Peter compels the, the, the Christians who are reading his letter that they need to live in holiness with one another. He kind of focuses on relationships within the church with one another. Now he's going to shift. And starting in uh, chapter 2, verse 11... Um, all the way through chapter 4, I believe it's verse 11, so 2.11 through 4.11, some, somewhere around there, near the end of chapter 4, you're going to see that, that he's going to focus on how Christians live in the world. Um, so he's, he's dealt a little bit with the church, but most of the letter, the majority of the text, really deals with how do we live Christ-like in a world that's not Christ-like. And so we're going to hit a lot of different topics as we go through these things. And again, when you preach through the Bible verse by verse, you don't get to dodge anything. And so today, we're going to talk about our reputation, specifically our reputation in culture, society, and work. And we'll look at how, uh, as Christians, we're supposed to have a godly reputation in those three areas. And then I'll finish by reminding you all of the gospel. But that means today, um, I'm going to talk about two things you're not supposed to talk about. Uh, religion and politics. So y'all buckle up. I won't talk about Bruno though. We don't, we don't talk about Bruno. I'll leave that one, but I'm going to talk religion and politics. Okay. And the, and the theme I want to go after is the theme that Peter goes after, which is reputation. He deals with how people view and look at, at the church, um, what their perception is and reputation matters. If you read the Bible, uh, very much at all, you're going to see that reputation matters. And our tendency is to kind of be people that say it doesn't matter. Like only God can judge me. I don't care what people think about me. But the Bible says otherwise. The Bible says you actually have to care about reputation. Now, I'm a prideful man and I, I care about my reputation. I care about what people think about me probably more than I should, probably more than most. I want all of you guys to like me. Um, I'm a people pleaser. And, and I have 
traditionally really prided myself in my, my truck, and I just got a new truck. It just hit social media, and there was all kinds of gifs and all kinds of controversy surrounding it. Because my new truck is a Ford Maverick that only has a four and a half foot bed. And I used to sleep in my six and a half foot bed. I'm six foot six and I used to, like we went on a pastor's retreat one time and Pastor Jeremy made fun of me because I didn't sleep in the Airbnb we rented. I slept in my truck. He was like, you're so prideful about your truck. And so he's like, you've built up this reputation. Then you get this little car that's not really a truck. And I'm like, it's a truck. So for like, for a long time now, Jeremy and I have been arguing. He sent this meme in our staff thread, just went right through me, ticked me off. And it was a, it was a, a collage that he made of, of beds that are bigger than Will's truck bed. And one of them was like a bed of rice. Like it was just like all these, you know, he's just making fun of me. And so it's like, it's really damaged my reputation. And, and so I've had to swallow a lot of pride with this. And it's shown me something about myself. It's shown me that I probably put too much stock and what, what Pastor Jeremy thinks about me. So I like all of y'all, but I don't care about what Pastor Jeremy thinks anymore. Okay, just wanted to clear the air of that. But what, what we're going to see in Peter's letter here is that as Christians, we, we don't get to say we don't care what people think about us. We don't get to say, I don't care what such and such thinks about me. I don't care what the world thinks about me. I don't care because only God can judge me. Um, those are not things that the Christians get to say. Because we're called, as believers who are called to be holy like God is holy, we are called to care about our witness and how the world perceives us. And we're actually supposed to put a lot of effort into that. So let's go through these uh, three areas that Peter looks at. The first one he's going to look at is culture. Um, so we look at our reputation and, and a culture that, that increasingly is, is not godly. And what I mean by that is that our culture is trending toward um, morality being defined by what makes us feel good rather than what God says. And, um, and it, this is important, especially, especially if you have kids. This is important, parents, for us to teach our children this, that, that morality is not defined by our feelings. Morality is defined by what God says. If we believe in, in an all-powerful, sovereign creator, then he's the one that gets to decide what's right and what's wrong. Right? Like I said, Jeff earlier, and some of you GIF people probably got your feathers ruffled a little bit. Well, the guy who created the GIF calls it a GIF, and since he's the creator, he gets to call it what he wants, and we abide by that objective morality, right? So it's GIF. If you say GIF, you're wrong. Okay? Well, conversely, in, in the world, we, we're seeing in culture a trend toward whatever makes you feel good is right for you. It might not be right for someone else, but it's right for you. Well, that kills objective morality, doesn't it? Um, and, and I think some of the worst advice we can give our children is to follow their hearts. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart's deceitful above all things. It's desperately wicked. Who can understand it? I mean, we don't follow our hearts, and we don't, we don't adhere to whatever makes us feel good, because you know one of the things that makes me feel good is sin. That, that, that the pleasures of our past life will, will bring about in us a desire to return to those, but God has called us away from those things because he's shown us and revealed to us his objective morality and what is good and what is bad. And so Peter reminds the Christians who are living in a culture that's not Christian that they are to be different. He says in verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, um, some translations even say aliens here, showing that they are complete foreigners 
in, in a sense of morality in the world that they find themselves in. To abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter's reminding them that it's going to take effort on their part to remain holy. Uh, Peter's theme of his letter is holiness and how to, how to live in a way that pleases God and to be holy or set apart like God is holy and set apart. Um, one of the things I, one of the activities that I enjoy as a pastime in my truck, my very manly truck, is to put fishing poles in it and go trout fishing. And uh, fishing for trout is interesting because trout's a, a real finicky fish, and um, you can you can go in the river and you can see a trout, um, and and they'll just they'll remain in a pool of water and they won't eat anything, whether they're not hungry or whatever it may be. But you can see them uh, kind of remaining in one spot. And to remain in one spot in a stream where water is flowing, they actually have to continually swim um, so that water can pass through their mouth and out their gills. That's how they breathe. And so for that to happen, they have to continually be facing upstream and swimming to remain in the same spot. And, and this is a good image of what we are as Christians in the world today, that we are swimming upstream in a downstream world, that, that we were headed downstream like the world straight to hell, but God has saved us and changed our trajectory, changed our path to now we have turned around completely and are going the opposite direction toward heaven. And our calling as Christians is to call those around us who are still downstream to turn and head upstream with us. And this is what it feels like as a Christian. It's like we can never stop. We can never let our guard down because when we do, the passions of our former sinful desires will creep up on us and catch us in a snare. And so Peter tells them, he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Now remember, he's writing to Gentiles. The word Gentile just means non-Jewish people. Peter's a Jew. And so from Israel, he's writing to people in other nations, and he says to keep their conduct among the Gentiles um, honorable, which is interesting because he's writing mainly to Gentiles. What this shows us is that Peter um, is using the word Gentiles to describe someone's religious affinity rather than their nationality. And so he's saying keep your conduct among the pagans, religiously speaking, Honorable, because now you, as who were formerly Gentiles, you now identify as spiritual Israel. You are God's people. And so he says, as aliens in this world, abstain from the passions of the flesh. And so when culture is progressively moving toward morality being equal to positive feelings in, in your heart, that the culture that says be, act, do, or identify however feels right to you, the Bible has some strong admonitions for the Christian. Our reputations matter in culture, and we're called to define good not by what brings us pleasure, but what brings God glory. We do not live for pleasure. We live for God's glory. And so I believe we're going to live out our days continually in an increasingly pleasure-driven culture. And as that happens, Christian, you're going to need to remember this, that you are guided by the Holy Spirit and God's word, not whatever makes you feel good. And ultimately, what will make you feel best is honoring God and being with him on what Peter calls the day of his visitation. When he meets us and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. 
that we've lived holy lives. Yes, we've stumbled and fallen along the way, but we've striven hard, swimming upstream to honor our God. But you see, moral decay is not a new thing. Boomers, it didn't start with Gen X. Gen X, it didn't start with millennials. Millennials, it didn't start with Gen Z. This is something that Peter was dealing with in his generation and the nations that existed at his time, and it will exist until Christ returns. You see, Peter understood the reality of moral uh, decay in culture, and that's why he said that we have to wage war against it in verse 11, because the passions of our former sin will wage war on us. You will be tempted to return to your favorite sins that you used to worship before you worship Jesus. It's going to be a battle for you. But let me encourage you, like Peter did, to keep your conduct honorable. And look at the results, that when we keep our conduct holy and honorable, look what happens. In verse 12, it says that they will see what are good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That means that people who are far from Christ right now will become followers of Christ through your good deeds. Now, it's ultimately God who saves, and we're not saved by our good deeds, and, and no one else is. But through our good deeds, God is going to use them for his glory and to actually draw people to himself. What an amazing opportunity for us to be a part of. Amen, church? That, that through the goodness that we live out and through our good reputation, people will take notice of that and they will bring glory to God and become worshipers of God. I think Peter's echoing what Jesus preached in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, 16, Jesus said, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so in a culture that's downstream, church, fight hard to have a reputation of living upstream. Let's look at the next one. Let's talk some politics. Reputation in society. So not only do we guard ourselves culturally um, in kind of this non-formal arena of culture, but even in the, the formal aspect of society, and what I mean by that is government, citizenship, etc., uh, we live our lives as peaceable people to reflect the peace of Jesus. First Peter 2.13 says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And so just in case you would say, well, I'm an American and I don't live in an empire, so this doesn't apply to me. Um, it, it, Peter makes it clear. He, he even says, um, every human institution. He says, whether the governor or whether the emperor. And so he's using examples of what's in his time. And just because he doesn't say president doesn't mean that it doesn't apply to us as Americans. Rather, he's given a principle of submission to um, a nation. Verse 15, he continues, this is the will of God. He says, if you buck against this, you're bucking against God's will. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So generally speaking, what's the Bible telling us here? Well, the Bible's telling us to pay our taxes, to obey the speed limit, to renew your registration and inspection sticker. Milton PD didn't just pay me to give a plug here for that. That's, that's, I, think, I think generally speaking, we are to be good citizens, law-abiding citizens, and Peter's reasoning for this, uh, for being peaceful and obedient citizens, is that the world full of ignorant and foolish people would look at us and they would put them to silence. You see, the main idea is that God's people are not a rebellious people. 
We're all born as, as children of rebellion. Depravity and, and the sin in our lives is the fruit of rebellion. And when Jesus causes us to be born again and saves us and calls us out of darkness into light, we cease to be rebellious people. We actually become a submissive people. We become submissive to God first and foremost, but it plays out even in other areas of our life that we become a submissive people. And by the way, it doesn't matter who's in office, whether or not we are peaceful and submissive. At the time that Peter wrote this, which is around A.D. 62 to 64, somewhere in that time period, uh, the Roman emperor was the supreme ruler of the world at that time, and he was a guy by the name of Nero. Uh, many people believe Nero to be the Antichrist, um, I would say that Nero is one of many antichrists, um, but theologically speaking, he was very antagonistic toward the gospel. Um, he persecuted Christians. He murdered Christians. He was a wicked, wicked man and a terrible emperor. Nevertheless, Peter says, honor the emperor. Submit yourself to the governmental leadership. And so we're sorely mistaken Christians, when our emphasis becomes on voting the right way rather than living the right way. Peter's making a clear point here that our reputation isn't on who we align with politically, but how we live in light of the fact that we've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. On January 6th last year, insurrectionists entered the Capitol in D.C. I remember watching it on the news, and one of the passages of Scripture that immediately came to my mind was this passage of Scripture. This passage about um, obeying the law and submitting to the government. This passage of scripture speaks directly to that kind of thing. And that there, there, are, there are areas, I think, because I'm not a pacifist, I think there are areas where war is justified and conflict is justified. But, but as a Christian, I think our default has to be one of peace and submission, uh, not rebellion. And I think this even brings up some interesting questions like the American Revolution. and Was that godly or not? Uh, maybe we could grab coffee and talk about that because that's a long conversation that I don't have time for in my sermon. Right? But I think the, the friction comes that I think Westerners tend to look at these two things as polar opposites. And the two things are submission and freedom. We think if we submit, we're not free. Because we tend to think of submission like, like we're in the octagon, like it's MMA. Submission means you have given up. You have, you have tapped out, so to speak. That's not what the Bible means when the Bible says submission. Wives, the Bible tells you to submit to your husbands. That in no way means that you're not free. You're not in bondage to your husband. That doesn't mean that you don't speak freely in your marital relationships. Um, it tells church members that they're to submit to elders. That in no way means that Christians are not free in Christ to, to be equipped for the ministry that God calls them to. And when we look at submission and freedom as opposing forces, we actually misunderstand them both. Verse 16 says, live as people who are free, but also as people who are servants. It means that we understand our freedom that Christ has given us. We understand that when there are evil powers in power, that we, we serve a higher king than them. But it also means that we lay down our liberties in the name of showing Jesus' character to a world that needs to see it. You see, remember, the issue here is not to beat people into submission, but to see submission for the sake of reputation so that the world would look at Christianity and say, these are the best kind of citizens to have. They're loving. They're peaceful. 
It's a witness to a lost world. And Peter summarizes in verse 17 with four very short sentences. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Honor is the Greek word tamao, which means assign value to. He says assign value to everyone. Everybody deserves honor. Everybody deserves value. Everybody matters because they're created in the image of God. In Latin, what we would call the imago Dei. He says, furthermore, though, love the brotherhood. There's a different word that's assigned to the church, brothers and sisters in God's family, the church. We are called to love one another. The Greek word there is agape. It means unconditional love. It's the love that God has for his children. We, in turn, reciprocate that to our brothers and sisters in Christ. He continues, fear God. Understanding God's sovereignty and God's holiness and God's wrath, we fear him. Not in a terrified, paralyzing fear, but in a reverent and obedient fear and a confident fear, knowing that God's wrath has been turned away from us through the cross of Jesus and his resurrection. And he says, honor the emperor. The same word that's assigned to everyone, it means assign value to, tamao, is assigned to the emperor as well, or political leaders. Now, as you honor the emperor, I would say that also means honor the president, that means honor the governor, that means honor baby dog, that means honor, you know, honor, give honor where it's due, right? Lord knows we got to honor baby dog. But if, but if this makes you uncomfortable, submitting to, let's say, the, the Biden administration or uh, praying for our president, I, I, want you to, I want you to notably see what's not present in this passage. It doesn't say that you have to love your political leaders or their policies. And it also says you don't have to fear your political leaders or their policies. That your fear is for God and your love is for God's church. And you place honor and submission in the right place to honor the reputation of God, but you ultimately trust in the plan of God, not any kind of political victory. Let's look at reputation and work. You see, we're mindful of our reputations in culture and society, also the workplace. Um, for many of us, this is, this is the majority of our time. Um, maybe we spend more time at work than really we do sleeping or recreationally. Um, so our, our jobs or our places of employment are huge, a huge piece of our witness. And Peter writes, not, not directly to just employees, specifically to slaves, uh, but I think it has some broad application. Look at verse 18. He says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle masters, but also to the unjust masters. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now, Peter's probably writing to uh, what we would call indentured servants in the first century. Um, don't, don't necessarily compare it to American slavery. It's not exactly the same, but I would say Roman slavery was still very harsh and very cruel. And the, the law gave rights to masters that were inhumane. And he's writing to people who had probably, some people were born into it, but most of them had, had sold themselves into indentured servitude. That whether debts or, or just poverty had gotten to the place where they were willing to sell themselves into indentured servitude so that they could have basic provisions. 
And they find themselves in this uh, predicament and they become believers. And Peter writes to them and he says, continue to submit to your masters. And I think this can broadly speak to any work that we do. That when any worker, whether indentured servants or just employees, are treated unfairly, uh, we are still to, to act and, and honor the Lord and ultimately honor our work ethic in a way that's pleasing to God, in a submissive way. When workers are unfairly treated, yet they continue in respect, Peter calls that a gracious thing. Gracious thing, by the way, means giving something to someone who doesn't deserve it. Christians, that's what you're called to do because you have been giving something you didn't deserve. Salvation through Christ's death and resurrection. And so as, as followers of Jesus, we go into a world literally giving honor and respect to people who don't deserve it as an analogy of the grace that's been bestowed upon us. That's the reputation that we seek after as Christians. Ultimately, our example for submission in all three of these things is found in Jesus, though. Because it, I think we can look at this through like a 2022 lens and we can, we can talk about Joe Biden and baby dog and justice and we can talk about our, our jobs and whatnot. But I, but I think the original audience of Peter had, it, had a much more difficult pill to swallow than we do. I mean, they didn't have Biden. They had Nero. They didn't have, they didn't have like desk jobs that were boring. They had... They had they had positions of slaves. And when they read the letter, I, I just have to think that they, they read Peter's letter and they, some of them had to just be like, are you sure that's what it says? Is there, was there like a typo or like a quill error when we were copying this down? Because that just doesn't sound right that, that God wants us to be this submissive. That we're just going to kind of roll over. How in the world are we supposed to maintain this reputation of godliness and holiness? How do we do that? Well, Peter anticipates that question. And in verse 21, he says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. And so if you look at this and you think, Well, there's no way I can keep this reputation. It's, it's too heavy of a burden to bear. I've got good news for you. We're reminded of the gospel. We're reminded of Jesus. So uh, what, what Peter does is he reminds us of these truths, that when we're surrounded by sin in a culture that is decaying, morally speaking, we can be reminded of the grace that changed our lives and the grace that can change the sinful people around us. When we're dissatisfied with the direction of our nation, for example, or the direction of any kind of government entity, we can be reminded in our submission that we serve a better and higher king named Jesus. And when our jobs just feel like dead ends and we're just kind of existing to pay the bills, we can be reminded Jesus worked so hard to provide for us riches and glory. You see, the reminder of the gospel is critical for our mindset in keeping this reputation. So Peter finishes with this gospel reminder. Verse 22, speaking of Jesus, says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree 
that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you restrain like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So when we think, man, there's no, I'm going to really mess up the reputation of the church. I don't know what Jesus was doing in saving me because I'm bringing a bad rap to this, this whole church thing. I can't live the church lifestyle. I can't dress the part. I can't act the part. I can't talk the part. I can't walk the walk or talk the talk. When you feel like that, you be reminded that Jesus died for you. And Jesus is the one empowering you to live out that holy reputation. And Christians, listen, we're called to live quiet and peaceful lives. But at the same time, when we live quiet and peaceful lives, that will produce a loud and bold testimony of Jesus's gospel to the world because they won't be converting to something we are doing. They'll be converting to something we are showing. Paul writes in his first letter to Timothy, chapter two, verse one and two, he says, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead, Christians, we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And so let's watch how we conduct ourselves. I want to give you a parable of sorts. Um, I was in a church one time with, that was kind of operated by a board of, of deacons. And there were two deacons in particular. I'm not going to share their names. But, but one of them was just like that typical... I mean, what you think of when you think of a mad Baptist deacon, right? And, and he was just like, he was just against everything. He was one of those guys. Like, he, he'd just object to whatever was going on just for the sake of being mad about nothing, right? He would, he would argue everything. He'd question everything. He'd give his opinion on everything, even when nobody cared or wanted it. He was just that guy. And, and then there was another deacon who was like, I mean, he was like the antithesis of this guy. He was patient. Like, I, I know, I know, like, when I was in that church, I had some really stupid ideas, and this guy was gracious with me. He was very patient with me. He was kind and compassionate and loving. And, and when decisions were going to be made, uh, these, these deacons would kind of be at odds with each other a lot of times. But when the church maybe wanted to do something that was unwise, and the first deacon would stand up and say, that's a bad idea, guess how the church responded? Well, he's doing what he always does. He's complaining, he's griping, he's, he's against it, he's against everything. But when the, the humble, peaceful, quiet, patient deacon stood up and said, this is a bad idea, the church was like, maybe we ought to listen to him. It's kind of a boy who cried wolf scenario. And, and I think what Peter is painting for us is this peaceful, submissive life of God's church. That we live in such a way that people take notice of it, and when, and when disaster hits their life and we speak into their situations, they take note of it because of the way we've acted around them in the past. We earn a right to share the gospel with people who need to hear it most at the times they need to hear it most. Church, hear me very clearly. God wants to use you in those situations. You're not dragging them to your pastor you're not dragging them to some uh, theological expert. God wants to use you, build on the reputation of your holiness that you've established with people in your life that when they hit a wall, they'll respect what you have to say. And you point them to Jesus Christ. 
Let me show you one last thing. Verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see what? Your good deeds. Peter comes back to this point over and over and over again. That there, there has to be intentionality in us, church, to carry out good deeds, to do good works. Not so we can make it to heaven, but because we are going to heaven. Because we've been redeemed by Jesus' death and resurrection, we've been saved. Now we want to do good deeds. He's changed our mindset here. And, and the, whole, the whole emphasis of people coming to Christ is predicated on them seeing our good deeds. Okay, you want to have a good reputation in a culture that's bad? Verse 12 says that they may see your good deeds and then glorify God on the day of visitation. The second realm, society. You want to have a good reputation in our nation and in society? Verse 15 says, this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, that there would not be anything that the, the, the non-believing world has to say about the church. Verse 20, um, you want to have a good reputation in your workplace? It says to do good and be willing to suffer for doing good. So in all three areas of life, our reputation is predicated on good works. And then we crumble under that weight because we're not good enough, right? This is where the gospel comes in. And Peter lifts our eyes to something higher and better. He lifts our eyes to Jesus. And listen, Jesus did not just do some good things. Jesus did not just preach some good sermons. Look at verse 22, how he describes our Savior Jesus. It says, he committed no sin. It's not until verse 22 that Peter drops that continual language of do good works, do good works, do good works. Then he points our eyes to Jesus and he says, he committed no sin. You want to go to heaven? It's not going to be because you do good works, do good works, do good works. It's because you have trusted in him who committed no sin. And when you trust in the sinless Savior, then you will honestly admit that you are a train wreck of a person, and then you'll finally be equipped to point people to Jesus and not yourself. Maybe you've blown it in all three of these areas. Maybe you've failed to have a good reputation in all three of these areas. Listen, God's grace for you is sufficient, and he wants to use you to draw more people to this family. He took your sin to the cross. You are far too valuable to him to give up now. Verse 24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Let's keep swimming upstream. Let's die to our sin and let's live holy lives. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.